John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1177.jb2414, certificate number 23582, The Smiley Face Killers. You went to college. I believe so, yes. But you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have never consumed alcohol. Uh... I mean, you had a little glass of Manischewitz once on a at Passover. I'm trying to think like what my, my all of my biggest alcohol consumption has probably been in the form of uh, tiramisu. Yeah, some rum soaked dessert yeah. or something. But never I, like I feel like I was served a cocktail once on a plane accidentally, and I took a sip and I was like, "This isn't orange juice. You can't just yeah, you can't just put vodka in all the drinks." Delta. <laughs> They're like, "It's first class. What are you talking about?" <laughs> I. Uh, as as most futurelings know, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I spent many years drinking heavily, very drunk, and did a lot of dumb things when drinking. You don't recommend it? Uh, no, I don't. Re- I don't recommend drinking at all. But I don't recommend uh, binge drinking or heavy drinking. I really don't. It's on my list of top 400 things I do not recommend. That's a weird kind of bucket list. Yeah, here's a list of things I. I don't. I fail to recommend to people when they ask for a recommendation. There are a lot of things I do not recommend. I say you should definitely watch the the Ryan O'Neill, Tatum O'Neill movie, Paper Moon, which is delightful. It's a great, great movie, although but, very problematic relationship between those two. But you do not say I recommend binge drinking. No, I don't recommend taking up skateboarding in your thirties. I don't recommend. That's mostly uh, for social reasons. I don't recommend listening to late nineties rap rock. Uh, there are a lot of things that I that I would recommend you not do. Don't go into the middle of Alaska with no outdoor survival training and expect to live off the land in a school bus. They might make a movie about you. Mm, yeah, that's true. If that's the dream. Not so bad. Best-selling book and movie. Don't stake the fortunes of your company on drilling for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Don't stake the fortunes of your company on a made-up blood testing device that doesn't actually work hey. just because the CEO has a weird voice. So you have a list of, of things you don't recommend. I do. Uh, but speaking as a former binge drinker, I can say that binge drinking produces a lot of uh, bad results. And uh, in, in my own case, a lot of injuries um, because you are drunk and you don't – you lose your motor control a little bit, but you also lose your judgment. You think you can do 
things that you can't drive, chop firewood. That's right. Climb things, climb uh, the outsides of water towers, <laughs> climb up things, climb down things. Uh, you think you can dance. You think you're funny. Uh, you think you're sexy. Those are less likely to cause injury. Well, hmm, I don't know. La- la- you get lasting injury. A lot. Yeah. I mean, I uh, knocked out three teeth. I broke both my hands. I spent many, many nights in emergency rooms and a smaller number, but still a significant number of nights in jails as a result of, of heavy drinking, out of control drinking. And I could hold my liquor. I'm a big boy. I was not given to blackouts or to passing out. I could usually drink and drink and drink and drink and stay awake and stay. You were you were conscious every time you broke your hand. Yes, I was going and going and going and the and breaking my hand was just a matter of being confronted by people who wanted to teach me a lesson and I was prepared to resist that lesson. Those people were just they were bumming you out. They were bumming me out. They were trying they were you know, they were they were probably in a lot of cases also very drunk and there was a lot of fighting that happened. And, uh, and also just, I mean, bad accidents. I never, th- thankfully I was never a, a somebody that drank and drove, uh, because I couldn't afford to own a car. That's what makes it easier to like hurt someone else with your dumb accident. Right. And there were a lot of, I've met a lot of people in recovery who were not aware that they had a drinking problem because they maintained a semblance of, of, uh, of life, right? They had a good job. They married or so forth and they didn't, um, it just didn't occur to them that that the fact that they would black out behind the wheel of their car or they would lose an entire four-day period and wake up in a motel. You know, it's like a lot of mental illnesses. You think you that's, figure out workarounds, Yeah, right? and you kind of think, like, that's how everybody does it, right? I mean, it's one of the things about if you drink seven days a week, um, there's always somebody to drink with you. You're at the bar, drink with somebody, then the next night there's somebody else, and the next night there's somebody else. But in your mind, you think, well, everybody is drinking every night because every night there's somebody to drink with. I mean, I definitely was surprised to learn in my early 20s that not all of my friends were there every night, were there every night <laughs> right? And then and they were people I knew well, but you know, then they went home and got up the next day and went to work. As a non-drinker, I've had to confront during the pandemic just the fact that I think bars are a little odd. You know, when I see people pining for, you know, they're they're pining for the, the third place, the place where you can get out of the house and have, uh, you know, and be convivial. You know, if you especially if you don't have a family at home or even a cat. Or even if you do have a family at home or In and some a cases, it's because you have a family <laughs> at home. But I just realized, like, I, have, I don't crave that that place where the people and the noise is because I live in the place where the people and the noise is. <laughs> right. Um, but when the pandemic took that away from people, I just thought it was so odd that that's what we've chosen to, that's what we've chosen to, to base, you know, a big part of at a certain age in your life. Socialization on is special places for uh, special kinds of grain alcohol to various percentages, right? What's interesting is that it, uh, bars and heavy drinking, the the role that they've always played is uh, in, in, in young life and in, in life of all ages. It's not just young people. Is, um, is a lowering of inhibition. A uh, it's, it, it, alcohol exactly is the element that makes you talk louder Lose your sense of um, what would have been 
you know, your sort of stifled decorum that dominates that dominates daily life. It gives you a chance to sing and to be out and and um, and whatever the troubles that were pressing down on you earlier that day are no longer present. That's got to be nice. Well, but the problem is in our culture of the moment, we also reflect back on the fact that all of that lack of inhibition also uh, eliminates a lot of the the constriction that's on young men to not be violent and you know sexually aggressive Harassy, yeah. and uh and all you know and also just entitled you know the a lot of the 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 inhibitions that that traditionally we couldn't wait to throw off our shoulders are actually the inhibitions that in contemporary culture we hope will keep people make, from like actually make a society possible. Right. I yeah. mean, you know, that we are, we are animals and, and some of those strictures help us. Right. And, and, um, and alcohol works directly counter to it. And it's a, it's a big part of the conversation around alcohol, binge drinking college students is, you know, we hold students who are very, very drunk accountable to the same rules that we would hold them if they weren't. And alcohol subverts all of those, you know, all of your judgment. It's just a judgment inhibitor in, in, in removing your other inhibitions. It also removes your capacity to, to judge people's facial expressions, to judge how far you are from someone to judge what time of day it is. And not even to be aware of, I mean, that's what I always find. I mean, it's one thing that's really kept me away from alcohol. It's just like, that's terrifying to me that the first thing you lose is your sense of what you've lost. Yeah. Right. Right. And for me, uh, you know, the, the, my tendency to fight, uh, when I was drunk, it was directed entirely at other big drunk men who I thought needed to fight me right then. It's probably best case scenario. Yeah. And a lot of those big drunk men also wanted me to fight them. You know, it was a, perfect. It's a classic sort of like Irish bar kind of problem of like, what did you say? You know, how dare you besmirch the memory of Sir Walter Riley? Like take it outside. Um, I never, you know, I never was, uh, a bully or, uh, or somebody that, and I mean, again, who knows because, uh, because of how uh, drunk I was, but typically I think the response I got from the world was, boy, you sure got into a fight with the wrong Australians last night. And I was like, well, they were speaking Australian and that's not, are there any wrong Australians <laughs> to punch in a bar? They really like to fight and they're good at it. Um, but our story, uh, is a story that that takes place in an environment of, uh, drinking, binge drinking, binge drinking, uh, uh, among young college age men, which is kind of weirdly normalized. It's super duper duper normalized. And really this is a, a, a thing that the more privilege you have, the more binge drinking is socially acceptable, the more I mean, it's it plays, you can probably skate by. Yeah. It plays a larger and larger role. And, and, you know, drinking in bars is expensive. You know, it is a, and, and drinking in college is expensive because you are in college already. I mean, you're already living in a world of, of, um, expectation and living in a world where you have a certain, uh, sense of what you're owed. Especially, well, and today you're, um, 
you know, your expenses might be higher there than at any other time in your life. And, you know, there's, uh, there are institutions in place, including your parents and the, and your fraternity That's to right. get you out of trouble. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's also, probably your first time. Like you don't have a lot of experience navigating limits and how to you know, avoid trouble. And we used to celebrate this period. That's one of the things that's, that makes this cultural moment that we're in so transformative because it's not just reflecting on the behavior of this or that individual drunk college student, but we're really reevaluating what was decades and really hundreds of years of kind of saying, oh, these young men, aren't they sowing their wild oats and they're- Boys ha- will be boys. Yeah, they're out there having fun and just, you know, learning the ropes. And now's the time for that. And not really ever thinking about the the uh, collateral damage that that turning young men full of booze out on the world. And, you know, and also young women as, as, as uh, college culture got more and more integrated and more and more diverse, that drinking also extends to everybody now in college. And hopefully people of both genders can punch Australians now. It's fantastic. That's right. There are just as many rowdy Australian uh, people of of, basically of any gender out there ready to fight. It's one of the things that defines the Anzacs as a people. Um, and what you get when you get young men in booze is you get a lot of accidental death, not just in car accidents, but, um, all kinds of violence. I mean, all it takes is, is one wrong punch, um, and mishap falls, falls, uh, like wrecks, uh, alcohol overdose is sure. even a thing. Sure. Um, I, uh, uh, the younger brother of a good friend of mine in Alaska, uh, left a party at one point and took a shortcut home, uh, climbing over a chain link fence. He got his pants caught on the top of the chain link fence and he was out in somebody's backyard and nobody could hear him. And he hung there and tried to get himself loose from the fence and passed out and froze to death. Died of exposure. And wow. that, that type of thing happens a lot. It's, it's surprising uh, the number of young people that just die, die of exposure. And not young people. This was a, this was a problem in Alaska. There sure. actually was a, uh, there was a city-funded uh, task force that would drive around at night and check in dumpsters. Jeez. Because homeless people would go into a dumpster to, to uh, keep warm. And either freeze to death or be killed when the garbage truck came. So it became a whole, a whole issue, you know, homelessness and freezing temperatures really don't go well. I I guess the climates where alcohol, the yeah, the climates where people might feel the need to drink the most are the ones where you, yeah, are the ones where you're least uh, safe doing so. In 1997, our story begins on the Upper East Side in New York, uh, a young college student by the name of Patrick McNeil, who went to Fordham, was in an Upper East Side bar, a kind of expensive, hip, cool bar, drinking with his friends, uh, got real loaded. Everybody, and he was, um, he was a handsome and successful, socially successful, considered a real Lothario, had a lot of girlfriends, really making it in the world, uh, drunk in the bar, and uh, decided it was time to go home, stumbling, drunk, Somebody was going to give him a ride. He was going to get a car back to Fordham, but it didn't come. It, you know, it was five minutes late or whatever. And uh, he wandered off. And, you know, 
Fordham's on the Upper East Side, right? He's probably not that far from campus. Not far from campus. Um, he heads off to you know to walk. Uh, l- later on, when uh, you know when people were interviewed there at the bar, friends and so forth, someone claimed that there was a white van parked across the street, and as Patrick you know wandered up the road, the white van you know started up and followed him, and Patrick stopped you know, briefly stopped for whatever reason and the van stopped and then he continued around the corner and the van continued around the corner. No actual malefactor should be using a white van. I guess, a white van. I guess in 1997, maybe we were less aware of the different vehicles. I can say already in 1997, it was known and understood, do not get into a windowless white van, no matter how drunk you are. Although I have to say at that I mean, by 97, I was sober, but in 1992, if a white van had pulled up next to me and somebody had said, hey, want a party? I probably would have gotten in the van. Is there any, there's no, no, no vehicle. I got in no, a lot of No vans. color or number of windows on a vehicle that would keep you from the promise of a party. Even if a guy with a cast said, help me get my boat on the top of my Volkswagen bug, I think I would have helped him. Less likely, I think. <laughs> Wait, is that a thing? Is that how you, is that how you kidnap people? You pretend you have a... You need a boat uh, to put on your on your bug. Yeah, that's a that's a little bit of a Ted Bundy reference. Oh, he had a fake cast. I he remember fake cast. now. He that had was his whole shtick. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Patrick then goes. Uh, he disappears that night. No one can. Uh, no one can guess where he went. And the thing about uh, Patrick is, he's not. I mean, he's a he's a a well to do kid or a you know a good like a like a cheeky kid, but not somebody that a van would tip. He didn't have like any criminal enterprise. He didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't bedecked in diamonds. Um, no, no real reason to target him. Right. But he, uh, he disappeared and wasn't found for another month. And his friends and, and Fordham, uh, students, you know, did an entire search of the area. They hung up signs. Have you seen him? Where did, where was he found? I mean, that's, that's a hard place to go completely missing. Well, they found him in the East river Mm. on the Brooklyn side. Oh, and he got uh, a ride from somebody. Well, or the suspicion was, or the, the, the NYPD investigated. Um, he, it was it was clear that his blood alcohol level was was pretty high. Even after a month in the river, it was point point one six. Does alcohol dissipate depending on how long you're in the East River? I mean, I assume we can't tell if Kennewick Man was drinking. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of instances in this story of um, people who are whose bodies are being in. Uh, you know, forensically examined after extended periods of time in the water. And they seem to be able to tell quite a bit about your state when you died from, you know, because it's, it's sort of like you can tell if somebody drowned or if they were put in the water without having drowned. How much water is in their lungs. Yeah. And when, what, I mean, did they breathe there? Did they breathe in the water? Um, so his death is, is, uh, determined to be, um, the cause of death is undetermined, and the suspicion is that drunkenly he found his way over to the East River and fell in. He went over to the river to pee in the river or something, looking for a place to pee, and he 
fell in and drowned. And currents took him to the other bank. And and then he floated down the river and 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 drowned. Right. Can this holiday season that is upon us or approaching rapidly, um, it's really a time of home-cooked meals and delicious smells. I think of it as an olfactory holiday. It's all about smells. It really. is about smells. It's but you know, gingerbread I, and the Christmas tree mm, and the the menorah smells yeah, the like menorah uh, smells. candle. I guess it smells like oil that because the, the, the magically keeps burning. Magical oil, dreidel smell. Uh, I. Uh, because this is also in the Northwest atmospheric river time, I spend a lot of time down in my clay bottomed uh, creek. And when I come up from hard work down in there moving log- rocks and logs, boy, I smell the high heaven. You are not adding to the delicious holiday smells. No, I'm not. I am subtracting from them. Uh, and I, you know, I, uh, I've discovered um, that it's appalling. I, I it never used to bother me. My my, I don't even notice it. But it's uh, but it takes away from other people's holiday experience. Let me recommend something you could do to get the smell of the holidays back into your crevices and armpits. Tell me, John. More. <laughs> <laughs> Let's tell the people about Native. Native is a company that cares about the product you put on your body, deodorants and uh, and whatnot. Um, they always have these classic and rotating seasonal scents, yeah. and that means around the holiday season. You can get a body wash or a toothpaste or a deodorant that smells like candy canes. Native is great because it's all aluminum-free deodorant. The The whole idea is simple ingredients like shea butter and coconut oil uh, that, you know, no chemicals, no terrible um, tested-on animals, uh, you know, junk to keep you clean. Have a clean conscience but when now, you smell good. Now you're saying that uh, that they have they have holiday scents candy cane sugar cookie fresh mistletoe if you've ever wondered why don't i smell like fresh mistletoe i do during this festive time of year i do wonder there is now no excuse stay merry is what you're saying stay merry and happy and fresh this holiday season you will love natives limited time seasonal products as much as we do Go to nativedeodorant.com and use code OMNIBUS to get 20% off your first purchase at checkout. Are you using toothpaste that smells like a sugar cookie, John? Mm, Well, yes, in the sense that I brush my teeth with sugar cookies. (laughs) No, you're doing it wrong. You need to go to nativedeodorant.com and use code OMNIBUS to get 20% off. That's nativedeodorant.com. Enter code OMNIBUS. Now, I should say that Fordham is not what a normal person would consider walking distance from 90th in the Upper East Side. Fordham is up north of the Bronx Zoo. It's about 190th. Oh. And it would involve... It it is further north than I thought. It would involve walking 100 blocks. Um, That is something that a drunk person would and could... Think they could do. I'll walk back to I'm the back. You can't keep me from Zaba Zaba. I've definitely walked 100 blocks in New York City. It takes quite a, I've a done while. It, I've done it sober, but it <laughs> takes a while. It's a it's a full day, and it's an exciting day. But you know, you're walking in the in the Bronx. It's sort of a straight shot. But in order to get there, you'd have to cross the Harlem River. Um, people who reflected back on the crime. Well, let me say that in the course of the investigation, a New York City uh, 
murder detective by the name of Kevin Gannon was was part of the investigative team, and he was a kind of decorated New York uh, homicide detective, and he immediately had his suspicions about this death. And one of the things that that came up was although he um, although he spent a month in the river, or his body did, Patrick's body spent a month in the river, it did not appear to have um, undergone decomposition. It didn't seem like a body should look after a month in the river. So he's thinking it was somewhere else and placed in the river more recently. That was, that was the, the suspicion. And of course the coroner de- declared it kind of undetermined. So it wasn't, it's very hard to say like how this body that doesn't, that seems unmolested ended up in the river. One of the things that Gannon said was to get into the East river from 90th in, in New York would involve crossing the FDR, which is a big, very busy highway, even in the middle of the night, pretty busy highway. Um, and I can speak from experience as someone who has hopped the guardrail and run across the FDR in the middle of the night to get to the East river. I actually have done that. Not drunk. Um, it's a hair raising thing. And if you were drunk, you would be, your hair would be raised. It's a, that's a, a real frogger. Maybe moment. you'd be more likely to try it drunk because it's such a terrible idea. Yes, exactly. But it would also seem to be the type of thing you would do as a dare right. uh, with other friends there. You know, speaking for myself, it's absolutely something I would try to do. But but more to the point, it's it's not necessarily so that he got into the river. If you accept that it was an accident, it, he also could have headed north, crossed the Harlem River, went down to take a pee in the Harlem River fell in and the Harlem river would have taken you to the East river and eventually to Brooklyn. So, but Gannon doesn't buy it. And, uh, if your name is Gannon, you kind of have to become a cop. I know it's a great cop name. Gannon. I want your badge. Gannon. My office, my office, Gannon. Um, a year later, uh, almost exactly a year later, almost exactly in the same location, Another body um, of a young college-age guy was found there, there in Brooklyn in the river. But when he left his group of friends, when he drunkenly stumbled out uh, of a bar, he was at 42nd Street in Times Square. A long way from the East River, from a long, long way from the Harlem River. Uh, ended up in the same location inexplicably wait like how close like the same location where patrick was found like yeah just within a few blocks of where his body was found Hmm. um now patrick went disappear uh, patrick disappeared in february uh larry andrews disappeared on new year's eve so both of these oh he was literally in times square on new year's Year's Eve. eve both of these i wonder if he was drinking you gotta wonder you gotta wonder if his judgment was impaired both of these guys went missing in the dead of winter. Yeah. And, uh, and this will be a reoccurring theme. Um, and Larry Andrews also, uh, not his body did not show what, what Gannon and, and other kind of investigators, uh, imagined would be the signs of decomposition 
that that reflected the amount of time they were in the water. Now, the science of bodily decomposition in freezing water suggests that the you know the transformation of of lipids in the body that is part of decomposition that the bacteria you know the lipid transformation doesn't happen as fast right the, the because of the cold the cold water actually does inhibit decomposition and in fact water does because you know it has uh sure stuff's aerobic and yeah it needs yeah it's it's a it's an anaerobic environment relative to pulling a body out of the water and letting it sit on the land and a lot of times a body is is uh, preserved in the water, and as soon as you take it out, it begins immediately to decompose. It's like you buy an avocado, and you know a day later it's brown. But this is one of the this is one of the things that that kind of is used to bolster this theory that I'm about to describe is that the bodies seem like they've been in the water a very short amount of time relative to how long they have been. Um, as as I've kind of uh, suggested, Patrick McNeil was the first of what became a rash of deaths where college students from privileged backgrounds who were athletic and handsome and well-dressed and popular went missing and then were discovered in discovered floating in bodies of water went missing in the winter having been super duper drunk walked out of a bar left their friends behind and then disappeared only to be discovered in some cases months later floating in lakes and rivers but it's all oh like so not all in manhattan all in the northeast or well, the uh, the murders in question are kind of splashed across eleven states. Huh. Um, they take place f- from nineteen ninety seven all the way to two thousand seventeen. So over a twenty year period, um, Gannon and his New York um, police partner it wasn't his partner, but became his partner in this theory a man by the name of Anthony Duarte, um, started to recognize what they thought was a pattern in this, in these young men who kind of paradoxically, we we're, we're very used to thinking now, uh, about the way murders and missing people are reported. And, you know, a, a, a blonde girl right, goes right. missing in the Southwest and it's all the news can talk about for 10 days. Meanwhile, you know, indigenous women, yeah. women in the Southwest are, you know, they're going missing, you know. There have been 30 such cases right. since that woman disappeared. African-American and- women, like you could fill binders with the number of people that go missing and nothing is ever reported. And, and a lot of that is a cultural bias, presuming like, oh, well, she probably is. That, she That's like, yeah, that, who, that just happens a lot there. Yeah, she ran away or she met, a you know, some guy or she became, you know, some, she disappeared but isn't the victim of foul play. But these are all high profile affluent white males. And in a way, the suggestion of this theory is that there is a, there is a kind of 
a corresponding bias that suggests that a certain percentage of privileged white, male, handsome, successful college students are going to die every year in drunken accidents. Liquor-related. And that there might be, right under everyone's nose, a prolific serial killer that is targeting precisely the privileged white males that you would think were, um, that, that, that are not victims, right? Culturally, we do not think of them in any way, shape or form as being victims. So we're used to serial killers targeting sex workers because they have zero visibility. Right. But here the theory is that these young men are so visible that there couldn't possibly be a serial killer working. It doesn't seem like, you know, I don't associate, maybe I just need to listen to more true crime podcasts. I don't associate the serial killer mentality with this kind of ingenious, devious chess game with police. I feel like that, that, that doesn't really happen, right? Usually they're just kind of grappling with their own demons and they'll, they'll do what it takes when the, when the madness strikes, you know, they'll, they'll find a victim. But I mean, if true, this is a pretty, seems like a pretty brilliant murder methodology. Police love to think that they are jousting with super brainy it fl- criminals. It flatters them, right? Then they can imagine that they're Batman or Dick Tracy and not, you know, just... Just failing just, to f- just catch sh- the criminal. Just schmoes, <laughs> yeah, like constantly fighting a barrage of, of uh, you know, kind of the dumbest dregs of, of, uh, of what civilization now offered. Hey, John, have you ever discovered that you were still paying for a service that had renewed automatically or a free trial you thought you had canceled. Oh, this drives me absolutely crazy. It's not, oh, it's not just that I, uh, have, it's that I, that I'm terrified that I'm paying for things that I don't remember. I call these things eels, um, because I associate them with the idea of like a remora, right? A, a little just a, sucking onto yeah. the the keel of your ship. Yeah, a fish that just grabs on and holds on, and they're they're tiny, but if you have fifty of them on you, they're going to bleed you dry, and you won't notice because each little bite will be so small. No, I hate it, and I look at my bank accounts and I try to figure out like, am I? Is there some mystery thing that renews once a year that I don't know about? Some some old magazine subscription or some. Netflix account that I set up a long time ago that some ex-girlfriend is that I'm still paying for. I, it's the stuff of nightmares, Ken. I just discovered looking at a credit card bill. I happened to see that we had been paid to signed up for some service we never ever used. What was it? I'm not going to say because they have <laughs> they have advertised on many a podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow they accidentally got signed up. Like we accidentally got signed up for them, and the free trial went. And I have a recommendation for you, like. These companies do this on purpose. They want you to forget to renew. That's sure. that's the scam that gets their subscriber base to grow. But if you don't want to let greedy corporations pocket your money, I recommend you download Truebill. Truebill. To take care of all your subscriptions. T-R-U-E-B-I-L-L. Truebill. Yeah, it's a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for the subscriptions you don't need, that you don't want, or that you signed up and then forgot about. You know, magazines used to do this thing where they would send you the re- renew subscription thing, but only halfway through your subscription. Right. So you're like, oh, is it time to renew for Time Magazine? And then pretty soon you realize you've got 15 years worth of subscription paid for. 
we used to think that was the trickiest thing a corporation would ever do. But who knew? But that, it got worse. Yeah, they could just attach an eel to you forever. So, so Truebill users find that they save about seven hundred and twenty dollars a year. Oh wow! Because um, they just they take the the difficult, the intentionally difficult cancellation process and turn it into a one click or one tap thing. And they've got a concierge service that you know just takes care of all of the nightmare part of this. Oh, that's cool. Two million users who have saved over a hundred million dollars total. Wow. I mean, I I believe it. I feel like I know so many people that just sort of they they wantonly subscribe to things. They have one of everything, but a lot of the, a lot of these things you forget even exist. It's not that you forget you signed up for them. Right. You don't even remember what yeah, they were. And it's not that you're like, oh, am I still getting enough use out of this subscription? Like you literally right are paying five ten dollars a month and no idea. So what do what do we do to to sign up for Truebill? Don't fall for these subscription scams, John. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash omnibus. Go right now to Truebill.com slash omnibus. You could literally save thousands of dollars a year. That's Truebill.com slash omnibus. What's interesting in the, the case of uh, Dannon and Duarte's theory, which they called the smiley face murders because why uh, because they're looking you know in any case like this you're looking for patterns to yes. to feel like you're if you're going to solve an actual serial killer you're looking for patterns this is the FBI profiling method like who is the who are these killers or who is this killer and what's their method what Gannon and Duarte start to pick up in investigating these murders and they're no longer working for the NYPD this becomes a um this becomes a theory that by 2008, they are operating at like free agency. Is it a hobby or does this, does this pay if you can get a, a magazine to get on board or something? That's, that, that's maybe one of the questions. In 2000, a, a young guy named Brian uh, Welzian, Welzian uh, in Chicago went uh, drunkenly missing and 77 days later was discovered floating in Lake Michigan outside of Gary, Indiana. Wow. Um, in 2005, a man by the name of Todd Gieb was found uh, three weeks after disappearing again in Michigan. And in his case, he was found sticking up out of the water in a lake, like head and shoulders above the water, just kind of in a frozen lake in a, well, no, he, I mean, all of these are happening in winter, Yeah. but, uh, no, just kind of like it washed ashore, but it's kind of bobbing, but there. kind of, yeah, head and shoulders above the water. Huh. Uh, in 2006, Lucas Homan left an Oktoberfest party in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Um, and, also found dead, and this was, in 2006, the eighth dead college student found in, in La Crosse, or missing from La Crosse, the eighth in nine years. So La Crosse, Wisconsin, quickly became kind of a focus point for uh, this type of death. He might, whoever it is, he might have started here, or... And I guess this does happen, right? Like, sometimes... Sometimes undetected patterns are out there. And then, you know, the recent Golden State Killer case was someone who actually had, what, over a dozen victims and nobody put the pieces together because of the geographic range. Right. Gannon and, and Duarte uh, joined forces with a, 
with a, a professor at St. Cloud State by the name of Dr. Lee Gilbertson, who is like a gang expert and a, a criminologist. And they devised this theory this, that the smiley face murders are a concentrated effort on the part of either a killer or multiple killers. A team, a gang. Oh, they're, they're not just independently people who have the same idea of how to get away with murder. They might be working together. Working together. That seems unlikely. To, That's not a thing. To target the best and the brightest, in, in Gannon's words, or the best of the best, I guess he said, uh, as, uh, like politically motivated to murder elites. the elites. That seems a little silly. It's, it, 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 it strains credulity. It doesn't seem, no, mo, I can't think of a serial killer with socioeconomic agenda. Right, but um, who's making a statement with their, uh, you know, it's a, they're they're grappling with a compulsion. They're not right. So some of the so the patterns that uh, uh, that Gannon and Duarte start to find are um, a lack of decomposition in bodies that have been in the water a long time. They they pay for the. The additional test, it's not typical in a, in a blood test for a medical examiner to test for the date rape drug GHB, which we talked about in our uh, Spanish fly episode. Uh, but, uh, but Gannon, suspecting its presence, um, tests for it and finds that GHB is present in a lot of the cadavers. Well, that's interesting that you would not expect that. You would not expect it. Now there are a couple of uh, things, one of which is that GHB is a party drug. And so it's conceivable that it was just part of the, the cocktail of drugs that, that, uh, that a young person in the mid, mid two thousands would take as part of a party. And also as the body, uh, is transformed after death, there's some speculation that GHB is a byproduct of the, uh, uh, of the chemical processes a, that happen after death. It's a party drug for bacteria too. It, that's right. So no medical examiner um, hmm. feels like the, the, like the presence of GHB is, is conclusive. Most of the, um, most of the bodies have no outward signs of violence. Uh, but the theory is that they are because of the, this decomposition, because of this drug cocktail, that the that the young men are kidnapped and held for some period, perhaps by a Red Brigade-style revolutionary group that has yet to take responsibility for these murders. For some reason, preferring to enact their agenda in the shadows, like revolutionary groups usually do not. <laughs> right. And then they are killed and deposited in these locations in, um, like— improbably sort of located downstream, you know, caught in a fish ladder or whatever. There's a, a young man by the name of um, Tommy Booth who went missing outside of a bar again in January. Uh, extensive searches were performed all around the region for Tommy. And then two weeks later, he was discovered floating in the pond immediately behind the bar. Which presumably had been searched before? Searched many times, according to the, the people there, and also found in a state of rigor mortis, 
which is a state that only lasts it's a few days after death. Well, not even forty-eight hours. 48 you know, hours. you're you, you're in rigor, and then it, then you're you go. I guess you're. When I say you, I mean your body goes slack One. again. So, but but again, also this is in the dead of winter, and and it's very hard to say like what what's rigor mortis, what's frozen. What is it? What happens when a body falls into a pond in the dead of winter and sits there for? And this is the kind of thing that there are FBI training grounds where they just leave bodies in different kinds of soil and different kinds of sand and different kinds of bog to so they can benchmark stuff. Right? They really do do that, and in this case, the theory, um, the FBI responded to the uh, the promulgation of this theory. By saying there's absolutely zero evidence that this is uh, that this is the work of a of a uh, of a single person of a combined effort, it seems to us the FBI, whose job this is, that all of these people are just college students in their early twenties who got super drunk and fell into a frozen body of water. But who are you going to believe? The FBI are two rogue cops <laughs> with a. a- with a criminologist. With, with a theory. <laughs> with um, a conspiracy theory. The smiley face aspect oh, yeah. of it. Why is it called that? Is uh, maybe the most interesting uh, component. Because it was one of the patterns that Gannon and Duarte detected in investigating all of these was that almost uh, in a lot of the instances either in the area where it is suspected the the young man went into the water or very close to the area where the young man was found, there was a smiley face graffito either on a wall or a pole or the sidewalk or a building. Do they have anything else in common or are they just, I mean, that seems like an extremely common thing. Well, you're not wrong, Ken. In fact, it was... Uh, determined by um, graffiti historians, finally uh, getting their <laughs> getting their time in the true crime spotlight. And you know, I have several coffee table books that catalog or that that document the evolution of graffiti over the years, from New York City subway cars to you know graffiti in Zagreb, Croatia. Um, that would be the last one in, in your alphabetical collection. <laughs> That's right. Uh, from the A-Train to Zagreb. <laughs> because graffiti art has evolved a lot over time and it's, and you know, and it, and it culturally resonated around the world from it, you know, from Brooklyn to everywhere. Uh, but it was, but graffiti historians have determined that the smiley face is the most common graffito globally. And it's not even by a professional artist. Often it's just going to be some yo-yo with a Sharpie, you know, waiting outside a, a building or on a train or something, right? Train platform. Yeah. And, and um, I see it everywhere. The criticisms of uh, the smiley face connection are, I mean, there, there are a multiplicity of them. But uh, let me make one right now. They're also casting too wide a net by saying, if you look in different bunch of different places you know where the guy was last seen or where the closest place he might have got into the water or where he was found as long as you 
you know, through a wide enough net, you can often find a smiley face. That's a main criticism, right? Like we don't know where the bodies went in the water. Right. And where they were found seemed to be not a place that the murderers would have been because they've, they're all floating off somewhere. So where, who is it that's putting these smiley faces and how do they know? And also when you see a picture, a montage of all the smiley faces, they are every kind of smiley face from a Sharpie to a spray painted smiley face that's clearly been there for 25 years to, and they, none of them look the same. You know, everybody's got their own smiley face here. Draw me a smiley face. Have you got a pen and paper there? Let me see your smiley face and I'll draw mine. This is good. We don't usually do courtroom demonstrations on this show. I, you know, that, well, you know what? That's not my actual smiley face. I would, I would do a, I would do it. I kind of do. I think Lego minifigure is mine. I'm not, I'm not doing the seventies guy with the line eyes. Okay. So I always put a nose. Oh, I never put a nose. Yeah. I always put a nose. Um, and I think a lot of people do. I think it's maybe the most common. Oh, with the two lines the, for the eyes or lines. This is your eighties trapper keeper smiley face. So if you see, I mean, I think of those as a, as a teen girl smiley face. I do too, but that's, lines. that's, that's problematic. John. Well, I guess, but I mean, we're coming from the eighties. When was the last time I saw a teen girl draw a smiley People face? People of all genders could see the lines as vertical eyes. There are quite a few smiley faces that have vertical eyes. There are ones with noses there. I mean, there's no, you would think if it were, if this were the one way that yeah. the murderer work, was communicating with us. In their dastardly, devious plan. They would at least agree on a kind of smiley face to draw. The Zodiac Killer just broke all these guys. They all want some puzzle to crack. Yeah. Um, but, the, but Gannon and Duarte have identified 13 different possible symbols. Uh, some of the bodies appear to be um, placed with hands over heart. Uh, floating on their backs, although that may be what a drunk person would do if they started to, you know, if they were like, I, if you're can't, cold. Get, I can't get back to shore, I'm going to float on my back with my hands It's on also my very chest. close to just kind of shivering uh, behavior, you right. know? And, you know, shivering to death. I mean, in a lot of the, some of the bodies, or quite a few, didn't drown, um, or they didn't have lung, water in their lungs, but you, if you fell into a, a, a lake and floated downstream, you would freeze in January. I'm no scientist, but I'm going to agree with that. Seems like it. I mean, I feel like the thing I would like to do here would be, you know, kind of like how they get an actual death count in an epidemic by looking at excess deaths. Like you want to find out, you know, just pick some random time in the time period in the fifties and see if you can also find a bunch of bodies turning up in the same way. Cause then it would just be a consequence of, as you say, uh, young people drinking in the winter. Yeah, I think like, are, do we really have excess bodies now turning up from this secret cabal? The there there is a thing, there is an organization in Minneapolis, Minnesota called the Center for Homicide Research. And the Center for Homicide Research has researched you you'd assume they would this phenomenon this, as this homicide. They're busy researching homicides. This has this falls under their purview and they have uh said that there is no serial killer work here, that this is just drunk kids falling into the, into the river. Is there anything you can do to make the case for Gannon and, and Duarte? Uh, like, uh, like, cause I'm, I'm not buying it. What, what ends up happening and, and Gannon and Duarte have considered and, and, uh, and their partner in crime Gilbertson have, you can tell that they are, that they convince themselves and that, 
you're now doing the backfilling of right. evidence, right? That everything now seems connected. They have a lot, the writing on this theory now. It's it's not that different from choosing not to get vaccinated and then loading up on reasons for months thereafter because you're dealing with the consequences. It does seem, uh, and and the the, um, the thing is you want to you, you hesitate to say that this has become a, uh, a thing that they're cynically doing for money because they do seem really, really convinced. And what, what happens is they go to the families of these young boys that have, mm. you know, that have died in, in this kind of sad way and have been missing for months and they give them this weird. The family's going to prefer this story. For yeah, sure. Absolutely. You, it's a, it's you're, a, you're the victim here. Your kid was targeted and preyed on. He wasn't just a dope getting too drunk on a Friday night. And Although they never say, and this all, you know, predates by a dozen years, any kind of, or more, predates by 20 years, any kind of Black Lives Matter conspiracy about uh, the world, you know, there's no, they, they've never made a connection to- um, An ideology. Right. A kind of like what would what would seem to be like a movement in the culture um, to eliminate drunk white college boys because honestly they've been doing a great job of eliminating themselves (laughs) but 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 the idea that these young men would be targeted for their privilege well predates the the current conversation because you know there's been and i think it's part of the the overall since the 1960s feeling among a lot of people in white america that it, that it has become a crime to be a young, privileged, white, drunk college student, right? That the that they are a disenfranchised minority by virtue of all of the op-eds that are being written about how, or, or by affirmative so action or whatever. Right. You know? It's so hard to be a white college student now. And so this argument that, no, your kid didn't just slip when he was trying to take a pee in the Harlem River, but he was targeted by people who were against him. Uh, so a lot of the families are like, I don't think so. It just seems like he is a dumbass and he fell in the river, you know, the Occam's razor families. Uh, but there are some families who have, you know, kind of seized, and often it's a situation where, wow, he really was in, in the river for three months. He doesn't look like it. Yeah. You know, he looks like he just went in the river 36 hours ago. How is that possible? So what is that? Is that just a case of us needing better science on on these kind of cold water deaths so we can... I mean, one of the things we don't know is what were what happened in that three months. And if a body froze and then thawed, I mean, you would find evidence in the... Yeah, broken vessels and yeah, stuff, right? Yeah, right, that the, the, the body would exhibit signs of having frozen. In. But... Typically, a medical examiner that pulls a 23-year-old out of the water and, and he has a blood alcohol level of 0.2, they're not doing um, super deep forensic investigations. I read the other day that as recently as the 1950s, half of all American deaths led to autopsies. And, really? and now they're just, yeah, it was routine. And now it's, you know, it's less than 10%. You know, it's autopsies are very rare now. Yeah, how do you, I mean, it's it, at... Unless somebody comes to you and says, actually, there's a serial killer at work, uh, most medical examiners have their work cut out for them. And if a, if somebody comes in and the and they, body in a river, yeah, they were found hanging in their apartment. It's, there's a good chance that it wasn't a secret cabal who are 
who who strung them up and made it look like a suicide. In 2017, a uh, a college student by the name of Dakota fell into uh, a river, the river in Pittsburgh, again in January, and was not found until March, floating in the Ohio River, many miles downstream. Um, and in order to get there, he would have had to have gone uh, not just downriver for a long way, but through a dam. Ah. And his body was uh, had no outward sign of uh, physical damage. It was. It just. It was. Um, again, sort of made the gave the family a sense of like there's more to this story than meets the eye. All of this um, led up to a documentary, not just a film, but a but a six part documentary series on the Oxygen Network. Uh, the the famous uh, investigative journalism of the Oxygen Network. Well, you know, there's a cultural moment now where we have an appetite for true crime. It has a huge audience. It has a huge female audience. You mentioned yes. Oxygen. Yes. And we just don't have enough interesting murders to match the public appetite for non-made-up murders. And, I mean, at some point there's creative forces that's going to lead us to want to create them if we can. And in an interesting flip a dip a doop a doo the fact that these are all handsome, successful, white college boys makes it very interesting television. Um, so although they're being murdered because you can murder them in plain sight, they now... They also get better ratings than a, than a, a victim of color might. Right, right. Young men on the, on the Oxygen Network. So as a part of the, uh, the expansion of the investigation, the, the sense of like, now, wait a minute, is this happening nationwide? As many as 335 different deaths of college, you know, young male college students can be connected through the smiley face and the wintertime water death to what a busy killer. Well, or killers or group. Um, what, What's additionally interesting is that there was a serial killer by the name of Keith Hunter Jesperson. Don't you don't have to use the middle name Great. just to make him seem more like a serial killer. You know the thing and is, it's I, Hunter too. I wrote I wrote down Keith Jesperson, and then I was like, wait a minute, this is a serial killer. He's got to have a middle name. <laughs> and I went back and I was like, oh right, Hunter. Uh, it's oh, actually here. I just realized I was thinking of Hunter when I th- okay. Never mind. I got thinking for- of Hunter College. I got Fordham and Hunter confused. That's <laughs> yeah. what I was thinking. Right, Hunter College is right there. No, yeah, okay. Fordham's all the way yeah, up by yeah, okay. uh, Yankee Stadium. Um, Keith Jesperson from 1990 to 1995, which is right prior to the to ni- the 97 death of Patrick McNeil, actually was uh, known as the Happy Face Killer. And, um, that was his thing. He left a a happy face at this, at the scenes of the crime. Yeah. And he was super mad. He is a guy that, um, that was mad that he wasn't getting credit for the murders. And so, uh, went into a public bathroom along the highway somewhere and wrote a big confession on the wall where he, you know, he demonstrated, he kind of proved that he was the killer knowledge of the crime and no, no one reported it. It just sat there on the bathroom wall. Nobody said anything about it. Didn't gain any publicity. And so, you know, you can imagine him waiting 
you know, for weeks, like, when is this going to... It's like me after I put up my post about my kidney donation or something. Right. Where's my attention? Why are my, why, am I, why is this not getting faved? So then he ended up having to contact the, author, the authorities and say, is, is that how he got caught? And then eventually, I think, got caught. Um, Genius. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, know he got caught because we know that he is I mean, we uh, know Ego Hunter is, Jesperson. I mean, Ego is the great American, you know, hubris is the great, the great crime, I guess, the great weakness. But um, I feel like serial killers of all people maybe need to be okay working in the shadows. Pick a different line of work, buddy, if you want attention. Well, if that is your theory, then perhaps the smiley face killers are the greatest serial killers of all time, both gradually murdering the ruling class scions. 300 of them, apparently. Um, whilst also leaving no trace and, uh, and taking no credit and only Gannon, Duarte, and Gilbertson are, uh, are, are wise to their craft. I mean, to me, now that I'm the, I'm the father of a college freshman as of a couple of weeks ago, I mean, this really strikes me as a reminder of just how common it is to do something dumb and permanent, uh, partying too hard on a Saturday night. Yeah. Especially in winter. Uh, save, one, save it for summer kids. Yeah. One so, lesson is if you're super drunk and it's freezing cold, don't wander away from your friends and go try and pee in a body of water. You should all, you should have a little slide rule at all times that computes your distance from water and the outdoor temperature right. and tells you exactly how many drinks to have. The alternative is that these are the world's greatest serial killers. And that concludes the Smiley Face Killers, entry 1177.jb2414, certificate number 23582, in the omnibus. Now, uh, you know, John and I are both strikingly handsome white men, so mm-hmm. perhaps this cabal will come after us. Now well, we don't drink, drink, so they're not going to be able to slip that GBH into us. That's true. Well, they could put it into a ginger ale, I guess. Yeah, and we might not even uh, we might not even notice that it is there because ginger ale is so delicious. Um, it has that great spicy fizzy flavor that you love. I said uh, I said. GBH, but it's GHB, right? Yeah, it's GHB. GBH is a punk band. GBV? Um, it's not GBV, although you definitely don't want to pee, put uh, uh, GBV in my drink either. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, if, if there's anybody who uh, should stay away from cold water after a show, it's the members of Guided by Voices who are, where are they from? Dayton, Ohio. Cold weather yeah. Dayton, Ohio, yeah, and Dayton, can Ohio. finish off a whole cooler during a single... <laughs> club show they are super drunk but my sense is that they don't wander off yeah exactly yeah, they stick together they stick in the van and gbh as far as i know ghb uh, well ghb oh. the drug gbh the band uh as far as i know uh they they tended to stick together too that's great i mean um, that's the thing about being punk rock so stay have with a, your friends have a buddy system yeah if you're if you're a rich college kid maybe you don't have maybe your friends aren't as close as you think they are uh, we, uh, in our time, we were, uh, at Omnibus Project on various social media networks. Um, we did not have any kind of secret sign or symbol we used to signpost any kind of underground conspiracy. We were quite open about our 
Wait, post. Do you think that we should have some sort of signs? I mean, why, why do we not already not have uh, some sort of Masonic symbology? Like for listeners, like what futurelings would do when they, you know, raise a tentacle when they meet another uh, listener? Yeah, I mean, Hodgman had all those hobo signs that he dined out on for a long time. Why don't we have some kind of weird, weird... Uh, you know, like a like a cross with an with a stag head over it, glowing with three rings and a. Wait, so you just have to have that handy at any time you want to greet a fellow uh, believer? Well, what, what, how would we use it? Um, I don't. We would just we would just put it like weird branding on all of our our super good merch, like I'm, those. Like, draw draw a little mail truck on the wall every time you kill a hobo. Well, maybe <laughs> maybe that's what I'm what I'm thinking of. Yeah, uh, I've quit killing hobos, by the way. Uh, sure, because Hodgman gets mad. You can. Uh, we'll leave that as an exercise to the listener. What is the what is the best way to uh, to recognize a fellow believer in the omnibus conspiracy? Yeah, when a body it meets a body coming through the rye or floating down the river. Uh, we uh, signed all our manifestos as at Ken Jennings or at John Roderick. Jointly, we were at Omnibus Project. Seek us out on social media or, in John's case, on Patreon. Um, you can send us your anonymous confessions in, in uh, some devious kind of ciphertext to the omnibus project at gmail.com. I'll spend a ton of time I on know that. You will. I know you will. I'm surprised people don't send us letters in code because you, <laughs> Oh boy, you would be so excited. <laughs> <laughs> like John knows I was trying to do today's New York times spelling bee during this show. Yeah. And I, I found the word addict today because we were talking about alcoholism. That's good. It's always great. Uh, when, when minutes and minutes go by and you're not making eye contact with me because you're doing a no, puzzle. No, no, I can do both. <laughs> I found two eight letter words, didactic and tactical while doing a lively podcast that's mission accomplished yeah, to well me. done uh you uh could send us your um you know we need proof you know we're not these uh, dopes on the nypd we're gonna actually need to see some kind of uh, glove or toe mm-hmm. um send and- us the toes <laughs> at five five seven four four shoreline washington i'd rather have a glove but if john wants a toe send a toe uh p.o box five five seven four four shoreline washington nine eight one five five um, find your fellow futurelings and uh, decide how you would like to recognize one another with a, any kind of uh, secret uh, 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 token or password. Well, yeah, you need an anti-murder sign. Like if somebody grabs you off the street and is like, I'm going to murder you, you need to be able to say like, no, and hold up some hand signal and be like, no. But that only works if the attempted murderer is also a fan of the podcast. I mean, as <laughs> Which I, I would like to hope they are not. You know, they're listening to other weirder. They're all listening to Joe Rogan. Mm, the murderers, you're saying. Yeah, the murderers. But as Omnibus becomes more and more the font of all culture, right? There's We're going to end up That's having true. a certain number of murderers. Do you think a serial killer would be dissuaded in the choice of a victim if they found out they both enjoyed the same podcast or Netflix series? I, they might go ahead with it when the devil drives. It's conceivable. I mean, I do feel like this is the funny thing about having a podcast that has as many listeners as we do. It's not entirely impossible that one of our listeners is already a murderer. How many uh, How many people in America are... are uh... Well, I mean, if we include people in the criminal justice system, I mean, there's millions of Americans in the criminal justice system, mostly because they sold weed three times in the wrong state. Right. Um, But I mean, and and also we don't, we don't consider people who have killed um, in, in war murderers exactly. And I, I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't say that, but there, you know, there are 15,000 homicides in the U.S. every year, right? more or less. So, you know, 15,000 homicides out of 350 million people? Let's say that's 10,000 different killers a year. Let's say you're... Oh, you think a couple of those killers are killing multiple people? I just think it's going to be gang-related and... Yeah, you get three or four in one in one go. Maybe. some. Yeah, there'll be mass killings as well. Oh, wait, no, no, no. This says there... I see the graph that you're looking at, but this says there were a total of 21,570 reported homicide cases in the U.S. in 2020. Well, it went up quite a bit during COVID year. Yeah, I think I think it was pretty obvious st- reasons. I think, sure, how you know how are you going to get your tensions out? So uh, it's not it's not implausible, right? That someone listening to this program is like, <laughs> I'm a murderer. So fifteen thousand. Let's so like, okay. Let's say there's fifteen thousand new murderers every year. Let's say they've each had about thirty years to kill. Uh, let's say they've each had about twenty years to kill somebody. So three hundred thousand murderers in America out of three three hundred million people. So roughly one in a thousand people is a murderer. Well, guess what? You know, we've, we got, we've got we've tens of 50, thousands of listeners. 60,000 or 50, 60 murderers listening so to the show right we, now. Even if we have just the average number. <laughs> Wait, did I just do that math right? I'm not sure. It, it depends on whether or not our listeners are more or less likely than the average American to murder someone. And I've met a few of them and I'm going to say more. So if you are listening to the show and if you are a murderer and if you're out murdering. Stop. Please, well, stop. But <laughs> First you, of all. That's a terrible lifestyle. If you can't resist, make sure that you're not murdering futurelings by saying to your victims, what's, what's, your, what's your favorite podcast? Yeah, what's the difference between, or what is the connection between a mail truck and a Quonset hut? And then if they say omnibus, then you have to set them. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be if some guy with a massive bag, a bag with eye holes over his head is like, what's your favorite podcast? Has you chained up in a basement? And he comes up to you and he's like, what's the connection between a mail truck and a quadset hut? <laughs> I would like die of fright right there. I'd be like, uh, uh, they were, uh, one of them was a show by Ken and one of them was a show by me. <laughs> I feel like I'd try to solve the puzzle. I'd be like, oh, wait, I can figure this out. Hold, uh, uh, hold on. Give me a second. They're both anagrams for a flavor of anisette. <laughs> right. Can I have a pencil and paper? <laughs> I know I'm tied up, but... Uh, so yeah, look for your fellow futurelings, not, not outside bars on snowy nights, but online, uh, on Reddit or discord or Facebook. Uh, and certainly, um, now that we're a true crime show, apparently we're going to find a whole new set of listeners. So if you have enjoyed this, uh, entry and have not, uh, supported omnibus at uh, Patreon and would like to do so, you can go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and read about all the cool perks and tiers of benefits and see if any, uh, what you, I was going to say, wet your whistle. That's not the expression. That's pretty good, though. See if any of them... Wet your uh, whistle. Light, Let's have that be our new phrase. Light your firework. That's not the expression either. See if any of them tickle your fancy. There you go. Tickle your fancy. Uh, and it turns out, also, if you're wearing an Omnibus t-shirt, it may protect you from being murdered. Sure. Or if you wear Mac Weldon underwear, <laughs> it might protect you. You never oh, know. Oh, dear. By the time they get to your underwear, I hope you've already established that they're not going to murder you. Yeah, they may not care about the brand at that point. Yeah, right. Wait a minute, Mac underwear. But I've already cut off two of your fingers. Put the lotion in the basket. Vigilings from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived or whether this episode of the podcast was the final straw. And 
civilization begins to crumble. Because we blew the lid off of the that's right. the secret cabal. That's right. They're the gonna, smiley faces rose up. The, the smiley the, faces are going to step forward like, like watchmen. Exactly. Uh, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.